Part of the reason the podcast is called The Petroleum Boogie is because when I drive and talk to myself, and I often record myself talking to myself while I'm driving. So I consider this action, which I am currently doing right now, I am driving and talking to myself, to be something of what one might call a petroleum boogie. And I thought, oh, I have like a billion fucking files and me just rambling about shit while driving in my car. I can use that as a basis for content or whatever. But I haven't done that yet. But now I'm doing it. I am recording an introduction to this fucking episode while driving, while talking to myself, while doing the official petroleum book. So this episode is what you call it, a collage of sorts. It takes all of my previous appearances on any sort of podcast and jams them together into some sort of hopefully mildly compelling treatise on creativity and community. Joining us tonight on another journey. Um, we are joined by another guest tonight, uh, Paul. Uh, you can introduce yourself. I don't know what to, uh, if you want to be just referred to as Paul, Paul Hanson Clark. I could cut that out or black it or bleep it. I'm not really going to do that. It's too much work. Thank you for joining us. So I guess let's just dive right in. Do you want to briefly just sort of introduce this whole fiasco for anyone who hasn't necessarily seen anything about it? Yeah, the basic thing is that in late November, at the very end of November, uh, this sort of thing went viral. What happened is this uh, woman named Ailey O'Toole, who is a young poet uh, from Tucson, uh, a woman, I believe she's 21 years old. She, she got nominated for a Pushcart Prize for a poem that had lines that were basically like stolen and then sort of like changed a bit. Uh, I would like it to like a, a, someone cheating on homework kind of thing. And, and that poem got nominated for a Pushcart Prize and she contacted one of the authors who she kind of jacked lines from, this woman named Rachel McKibbins. And then McKibbins, um, she like, she tweeted out like basically like fuck Ailey O'Toole. Uh, she's a plagiarist. Uh, she sucks. And then that went like super viral and people were just like, I don't know, like real incredulous and kind of tripping out about someone taking lines from a poem. And there's all these kind of like other cultural conversations that are happening on the side. So then like a weekish later, uh, this woman named uh, Claudia uh, Cortez, Cortese, I don't know how to say her name, but uh, Claudia, she, she did a post that was sort of similar to McKibben's uh, calling out this woman named Lisa Lowe for um, plagiarizing her book, Wasp Queen. And uh, basically like my position is that uh, the the Alio tool, she did plagiarism and that Lisa Lowe didn't. The the sort of backlash against Lisa Lowe wasn't as large as uh, the backlash against Ailey O'Toole, but it did seem kind of like similar in severity and that was sort of like weird and disturbing to me. Yeah, so it seems like broadly everyone kind of agreed that Ailey O'Toole had um, plagiarized um, and then I mean, my whole exposure to this was mostly just your Twitter and things that you're retweeting. 
Um, I don't follow a lot of other poetry people, so it's kind of interesting from my perspective to wonder how big of a conversation this, conversation this even is. Do you have any sense of that? Like how much of the poetry community is involved in this? How much people outside of that community are seeing it? Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm of two minds. Like on the one hand, it, it did seem like a pretty large conversation within the poetry community, particularly the O'Toole conversation. Uh, Rachel McKibbins has a pretty uh, robust Twitter following and a bunch of other Twitter poets with fairly robust followings were sort of uh, getting in on that. But on the other hand, there's this piece of it that to me seems like it's sort of like, I call it like the info buffet. Like it's just this kind of buffet of uh, information to consume sort of comes up every day. And one day it's like Trump is doing nuclear war with North Korea or some shit. And then the next day it's like uh, Kanye is like crazy or something. So like this was just like a kind of thing that came up for people within poetry to to have strong feelings about for like a few days. And, and then it seems like people kind of stopped caring very rapidly after it kind of blew up. So, so like that sort of says that the conversation, while it may have been large, is kind of meaningless or I don't know, like sub not very substantive or something. Yeah, I mean, certainly what you're saying uh, about the info buffet, I like that phrase. It seems like there's a fairly narrow range of emotions that we have in reaction to this stuff that we encounter in line, uh, mm -hmm. much narrower than the range of emotions we have in reaction to things we encounter, you know, out in 3D world. So it makes sense that the conversation would kind of die out because you you sort of get mad about it or indignant about it. And then there's not a lot of places to go after that, really. And you've talked a little bit about on Twitter, even before the Lisa Lowe, Claudia Cortezi scandal sort of followed up on this, that sure, Elio Tool seems to be a plagiarist or she seems to be committing some sort of um, naughtiness. But maybe the proportion of everyone's response is out of whack with uh, the harm that she's sort of doing does that I mean would you say that that's true that's 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 yeah I think that's a fair characterization of how I feel I uh I was very disturbed by it it was very weird to me uh you know like McKibben's like I, I get McKibben's reaction like she feels fucked up uh she has this platform that she can use Twitter to like blast it all out there but, but what was weird to me was, like, the kind of community reaction. Like, all these people, I don't know, they were just saying really, like, intense things about how terrible a person Elio Tool was. They're, like, berating, like, a tattoo that she got that's one of these lines that she sort of appropriated from McKibben's. They're just, like, sort of insulting her person, her, her physical appearance, like, all these different things. So, so I don't know. I, I just felt really kind of freaked out by it. And to me, like, my... My like take, I guess I have a couple takes, but one of them is that like, it's just this tech thing, you know, like we have these platforms that like juice this kind of behavior. It's, it's easy to get kind of gratification. People are more likely to click on things that piss them off and make them feel fucked up. And, and it was just like a snowball effect of that, where like you have a thing that like the optics of it are upsetting to poets because poets feel like unappreciated. So then like, this is just like a, really sort of clear narrative of like someone trying to like get over on another poet and then it just kind of unlocks all these like negative feelings within people and then they're just sort of like let loose on the social space and it 
it's it sucks yeah um you've talked a little bit about how there's a power imbalance in some of these accusations and and then just a moment ago about how you know poets generally probably feel underappreciated or like they maybe don't have a very big place in the culture um so i wonder if you know how all of those things inflect this conversation as you've said the reaction to all of this seems to be i don't know maybe it sounds a little harsh to say but more based around ego um this idea that like look if anyone should be getting attention for these these words this language it should be me um and like how dare someone else get some of that attention um i mean do you think that's representative of your view or what do you think is sort of going on here psychologically not only with you know these original people accusing someone of plagiarism, but then with this sort of uh, wellspring of community reaction. Yeah, the ego idea is an interesting one. I feel like ego is definitely a big piece of like what's going on. It's like, there's this feeling that I have that poets, um, they just are like, they're just walking around with ego damage, you know, like they're just like having a damaged ego is like part of being a poet. It's this weird thing where like, nobody gives a shit about what you do poets often like complain about how their family their relatives stuff like that like don't get it or don't care or whatever um it's not valued by the larger culture um the only way to make money is basically through like these institutions of academia etc so like if you're trying to get like external validation through poetry it's going to be a tough road for you. Like it's just straight up like a really difficult path. And weirdly, like a lot of poets seem to walk that path. Like I don't really understand why you would sort of subject yourself to this, like kind of endless desire to have your work validated by a culture that just isn't set up to validate it when like, and, and then this is like sort of my vision of like an alternative, like when instead you can just like cultivate, you know, a small but meaningful community of peers and loved ones, etc., who like value you as a person and value your work. And, and then you can kind of have that sort of like, as like the armor that protects like your artistic self or something like that. One, two, three, four. Busted. Come on. Come on, come on. Right. What's been the importance of like meeting up with poets IRL for you, I guess? Maybe we'll start there. Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like, it sort of began as like a, like a practical thing where it was like, like when we started the space for having readings and shit, it was like, Ooh, wouldn't it be cool if like we could get someone who isn't from here to read here? Like, Ooh, wouldn't that be exciting? And this is back when like HTML giant existed. And I think someone just like made a post about this dude named Jeff Griffin, who was like part of some, like one of those like collectives where it was like, they had like a name, like, like the door nails or some shit. And they'd write these like, weird poems and they were like i think they were all grad students at iowa which is only a few hours from lincoln so then i was like oh wouldn't it be cool if we could get this dude who was on html giant to come here and then i just like emailed him and was like hey do you want to do a reading in lincoln and he was like yeah sure and he came with this with this woman and they did a reading 
so it was like that kind of thing where it's like, oh, this this is gonna enhance the work that we're doing. But then you start doing that, and like you kind of realize that like it, it can be a kind of empty experience in a weird way, where like you invite someone to come, like kind of like share what they're up to with like this world that that you're that you're part of. But then you kind of get the sense that like they don't really care, like they don't give a shit about you or any of the people. They're just kind of like doing a thing because like that's what they perceive uh, as a thing that poets are supposed to do. So then the, the connections that you so but when people then do come through and you're like, oh, this person's really great, and I really like have a a vibe with this person. It just it just feels so special and so sacred. And it was like the personal name drop is this guy named Alex Savage, who um, I think how it worked, and this is like just funny, like the connection is like, and, and having like, oh, this is like a kind of like mildly subversive social gathering space that's like connected to these weirdos who write poems. Like that then sort of like creates a space for poetry, or at least like in people's minds, within the larger community. And then it's like, oh yeah, like poetry is a thing people do. And then like the guy who was up there just like hanging out one night, he's like then a hundred times more likely to tell his random friend who's a poet to check this thing out. And after like a couple of years of having that space, it, it just like, it just started happening where like random people would just be like, hey, I heard about this thing that you guys do. Uh, I've heard it's kind of cool, like blah, blah, blah. How it worked is uh, we were doing our writing group and this dude named Joe Younglove, he told a, a woman who was passing through town, just kind of like a, a hippie-ish traveler type about the writing group. And then she connected with our writing group and I became pretty good friends with her. And then at some point I followed everyone that she followed on Twitter because that was a thing I used to do. I would just like if I liked someone's approach to Twitter, I would then just kind of follow all the people they follow because I assumed that they would follow cool people. And because of that, I started following this dude named Alex Savage, who's an artist and a poet from Kansas City. And then because I was following him on Twitter, I started interacting with him on Tumblr and all his other platforms and shit. And he would post poems or PDFs or whatever. And one time I went to a friend of mine, uh, a friend of mine, uh, this guy, uh, Travis, he, he who who's a humorously a former professional golfer uh he he did an open mic in his friend's like basement called poet show it and i went to poet show it one time and i read a poem i like to read poems that i that aren't by me uh at, at readings and shit so i read a poem that alex had written that i had read earlier that day on tumblr or something and then i emailed him and i was like hey man i just i don't know you but i like your poems and i read this poem at an open mic and he was like oh that's cool and then like a year or two later or something the the now disgraced scumbag steve roganbuck was doing a reading in the space that we had and i was like i knew that alex had some like connection to alt lit and i was like hey do you want to come up and do a reading and he was like absolutely so then he comes up uh with his partner and he does this reading and then like, they're like really sweet, awesome people to hang out with. And Steve is like a really weird and unpleasant person to be around. And it's just this interesting thing where it's like, Oh wow. Like who would have thought that like this, this more famous person coming through would like result in a more like um, special or 
lasting connection with someone who's like kind of a rando but now like we're i don't know we're not like great friends but i i do feel very close to him and we do like communicate on a fairly regular basis and just like um that experience of making interacting with people in the world a priority i i don't know i just find it subtly transformational like it, it just kind of opens up it, it's it's as though like you're um you're opening doors that you don't know where they lead by like trying to connect with people who who you like have some sort of like understanding of who they are but are also like very kind of mysterious to you or whatever and the only thing you have in common is this art thing and and i don't know i have so many kind of kooky stories like that where it's just like oh yeah i'm in chicago i'm gonna call like my friend's friend and who i know to be a poet and like see if he'll like let me crash on his couch and then part of it's like there's kind of a thing about it that's like kind of privilege i i've jokingly referred to it as like privilege surfing where you just kind of like use your privileged identity to like get into rooms with people who like don't particularly know you well but you have like enough uh context that they feel comfortable with that you can just like hang out and it's kind of like i don't know i only i only think about this because just today i was talking to a friend of mine on twitter about how people who like just kind of travel indefinitely or really just like uh they kind of act like they've like hacked a life but really they just are like privileged as fuck or whatever but yeah i don't know nonetheless just the experience of like trying to connect with people i don't know it just it just invites like newness and new energy and uh new ideas about creativity and most importantly i think like fun and memorable experience you know like so much of our life is mediated through these experiences that we have and so much of the experience that we have from day to day is just this kind of same boring drudgery that we're forced in by this larger system so if you can use like this interest in art or creativity or poetry or whatever it may be to like even temporarily like create a space that feels different than that or outside of that it it just like for me it just like makes my heart sing and it, it makes me feel as though um maybe like a different kind of it's like a glimpse of some kind of potential that could be um like a, a kind of world that that's better than the one that that i'm trapped in most of the time i hate the capitalist system and i'll tell you the reason why it has caused me so much suffering and my dearest friends to die well i know you all are wondering what it has done to me well i am going to tell you that my husband has tb brought on by hard work and low wages and never enough to eat from going cold and hungry with no shoes upon his feet my husband was a coal miner who worked hard and risked his life 
just trying to support three children himself, his mother and wife. Well, I had a blue-eyed baby, was a darling of my heart, but from my little darling, her mother had to part. While the rich and mighty capitalist goes dressed in jewels and silk, my darling blue-eyed baby has died for the want of milk. Well, they call this land of plenty And for them, I guess it's true For the rich and mighty Capitalists, not for workers like me and you Well, now, what can we do about it To these men of power and Capitalist, we are going to fight, fight, fight. After months of people saying, why are renters not represented in an area that you've told us is 90% or more inhabited by renters? So, mm-hmm. so we got one, and she's a 25-year retired renter, which does represent some of the renters, does not represent all of the renters. And but this is about one of 35 people on the yeah, advisory board? Yeah. Yep. So, um, at this meeting where Carla Decker and I were um, kind of meant to be caught up on the process so far that the Community Advisory Committee um, has undertaken, I mentioned to both Scott Lawson and Barbara Bartle that the name Sodo was alienating to people, and if they were trying to communicate with the community and get people involved in the process, renaming their neighborhood without asking them at all uh, was not a way to again, like, increase confidence in the process that was going on. Mm-hmm. So um, I said, like, I told them, people are disengaging because they don't, they already live in a neighborhood. And it's like you've told them that the neighborhood they live in is now non-existent and you've replaced it with a new neighborhood. And their, you know, backpedaling kind of explanation was like, that was just a working title, you know, that we were using in meetings because it's a mouthful to say south of downtown development so we just start calling it Soto, and you know, you gotta slap something on the plans, blah blah blah. You know, so that's the that's the explanation they gave. But then they gave, they they didn't in any of the past public engagement efforts start asking, what do you want this area to be called, or do you want the name to change? Like they haven't done after hearing that from a person that they added to try to get the voice of the community in the community advisory board. They didn't do anything. They kept calling it South of Downtown. Because Soto is like slightly worse than South of Downtown. Or it's easier to make jokes about. I mean, Soto to me reminds me of LA instead of Los Angeles or Lodo instead of Lower Downtown. Yeah. Which even Lodo instead of Lower Downtown, like, did anybody call it that before? Maybe they did. I don't know. It's just. Yeah. Like... And it does seem to describe this tension between toponyms or inscriptions of place, the names of places, and the tension between official planners and local residents. Mm-hmm. Um, some reading I found in cultural geography suggested that 
by pronouncing neighborhoods differently or more authentically to people's experiences, there could be a kind of quiet resistance or subversion of these kind of top-down namings of place, like it seems to be the way that South Downtown or Soto is playing out. But I, I don't know, I'm curious about the limits of, of that and you know whether you think you know, people could sort of subvert the, the Soto plan just by calling the neighborhood differently on yeah. their own. Well, I mean, that's a, when I made that poll, that was the thing that annoyed people who are sympathetic to what we're trying to do, which is resist. And they're saying like, well, if we're being real, like the name is really not that big a deal. And to like put an outsized importance on that is to miss these real issues, which is like people are going to lose their homes, mm -hmm. all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. And we should really be focusing on that and not focusing on the name. And I think that's a, you know, that's a good critique. I think that's a, there's a lot of merit to that perspective. And my response is like, well, I just asked that question because it's simple. Mm -hmm. And it's going to drive people to this event page. And mm -hmm. it might like create conversation and whatnot. But also I think there's something to be said for like the sort of symbolic gesture of renaming a place without, like Amanda's talking about, without consulting any of the people who live there. Yeah. Well, I definitely think the naming is a big issue. And I wanted to mention uh, some patterns in terms of street names and renaming of street names. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are... They're drawn by um, a scholar, Rose Redwood, who studied the naming of streets historically for a long time. And they're big patterns. And they happen when places or streets are renamed, some certain things are going on. Uh, and maybe we'll notice some of them here. Uh, political transitions, colonial occupations and post-colonial resistances, national propaganda efforts, expressions of class differences, and struggles over collective memory. You know, I, I feel like these things are happening in the city now to some extent. And whether it's called Soto or um, the Near South or Everest it is a big deal. Yeah. I, I particularly like that struggles over collective memory. I think that's a really important point, um, especially as we're having these conversations. Because, so we've been meeting in this space, uh, I guess we've been not like 11 times now, maybe here, since June. Okay, just one sec. Yeah. We, I don't think we've said actually where we are, but I oh, think yeah. it's important. Can we say here at Space Commons? Sure, yes, here at Space Commons, 1239 South 14th Street, near the 14th and B laundromat. Um, we started having meetings here because it was clear that like the week of community meetings in June were not going to be enough for people to actually say what they meant or wanted or give input. So um, we started having meetings here, and eventually we're informed that there would be more consultant meetings or whatever later on. But so like, we've consistently been having them, and new people are showing up every time. And you get people saying, this neighborhood used to be really bad, but now it's really good. Um, so I don't know what the big deal is. There are people saying, this neighborhood has always been awesome. I've loved it since the whole time I've lived here. There are people saying, this neighborhood a couple blocks west or east has a couple problems, but that's it. Or the exact intersection of 11th and E used to be terrible. So there's like all these t this talk about like what people in their personal lives remember as their experience of this neighborhood. So trying to establish even what the neighborhood thinks of itself mm -hmm. has been difficult. So then when you have consultants from St. Louis coming in, saying they're talking to people and doing walks around town and that that's enough for them to gather a consistent consensus on what the neighborhood is and what it needs seems preposterous because even just talking to people who live here, 
there's no consistent idea about mm -hmm. when the neighborhood was at its best. So that's the thing we should be asking people so that we can kind of discover if there is a baseline somewhere and if people are kind of like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. People's experiences are different, so we should honor that and not paint like this false picture of consensus. Yeah, I think so too, and that's a good point about how even, you know, local residents don't have a consensus. Mm -hmm. I think I'm just repeating your point there. <laughs> but then it's complicated to figure out how the neighborhood, the neighborhood views itself and how it names itself. Yeah, it's hard work to figure that out, and you have to do the hard work before you start changing the neighborhood. <laughs> but it sounds like you are doing some of that work with some of the survey stuff. Yeah, attempting to. That's kind of like the first thing that came up, I guess, was like people were like, they're not listening to us, what do we do? They're not asking us, what do we do? And I'm like, well, I guess we could ask each other what we think about the neighborhood. And I'd like to hear again Paul's experience with contacting Angela Blanchard, because I keep explaining the Angela Blanchard plan to people, but everything about the story of you contacting her is interesting. So I want Well, to and it looks like he has something to say, too, so... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll definitely rip it up. It's Although I want to go back to this, like, this list of things that places and streets are renamed during that Jason brought up. And two of them like kind of seem relevant to this whole thing. The first is like expressions of class difference. The people that are trying to name this place Soto are of a different economic class than the people who live in this neighborhood. And it's a stark, a very stark difference. We're talking about some of the poorest people in Lincoln live here and some of the wealthiest people in Lincoln want to rename this neighborhood to Soto. And that's just a fact, you know, and it's weird that, you know, it's just exactly an expression of class difference. But another one to me is like, and I, I say this with my tongue in my cheek a bit, but I feel like it's a national propaganda effort. Yeah. Like I feel like this whole idea that things can be made better and new and better for shopping and like all this stuff and like, cooler and like more hip and more fun it feels like propaganda to me and going back to the sales pitch thing they say like we want to make this like the best safest most inclusive neighborhood in the world but their only proposals that are concrete are like real estate redevelopment proposals mm -hmm. and they're saying like oh we want to cure poverty but their only proposals are like, we're gonna build new shops. And that is propaganda, in, in my opinion. Um, and, it's, and it's really wild. So yeah, that's sort of like my, my, my thought on that. As for the Blanchard anecdote that Amanda was talking about, so the background is, I've been trying to email H3, different people involved with this process at a higher level. Just trying to get, go ahead. Can you just say H3, who is that? That's the consulting company that is coming up with the plan. They were they, hired. They were hired by this five member board, the executive steering committee. Okay. Here's this. Brother. Sure. Um, so I've been trying to email different people, trying to ask pretty basic questions about materials that they've created. So like there was a map and I wanted to know certain things about the map that H3 created. I call, secretary says that the person who could answer those questions can't because they're not available. I ask when they'll be available. She says, I don't know. I say, when we know, this becomes this like 
tug of war type of thing in this like parallel universe where like I'm to believe that sh she cannot effectively use a calendar to set up a conversation for me and this person who has the answers to my questions. Uh, I call, I email, blah, blah, blah. Getting a word from these people is impossible, essentially. Um, to his credit, one of the people on the executive committee, John Carlson, I called him, he got back to me immediately. And when I started to complain to him about how H3 wasn't answering my questions, then they got back to me. It sounds like Carlson's an ally. In my experience, he's been, of the executive steering committee, the only person that's worth talking to. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy talking to John Carlson. I think he has interesting ideas. And he's with the mayor's office? Yeah, yeah he works with the mayor. Um, so, that's the background. The, so then Amanda posted an article on Facebook. Which actually was shared with me by uh, one of the women who is on the board at the Everett Neighborhood Association, so I want to give credit for that. But and it's just like this New York Times article about some neighborhood work being done in Houston, Texas. And it's essentially like all about how what they do is they ask the residents what they think needs to change, and then they develop plans based on that. And I was like, oh wow, this is cool. And since I've been sort of like emailing people who are at higher levels than me, I was like, well, I'll email the person that wrote this article. And I'll email the woman that's being profiled. And they both got back to me within like five minutes. <laughs> and then like the next day, this Angela Blanchard, who was the subject of this article, her secretary had set up like an appointment for me to talk to her. And then the next week I had a two hour long conversation with her. A week after that, she had sent me like buckets of materials that I've since shared with Amanda. Um, so it's just like, when I'm trying to get in touch with people who are doing work locally, I get no response. When I like reach out to someone who is doing similar work in Houston, Texas, they respond to me immediately and they're incredibly supportive. And it's just like a funny uh, microcosm of the experience. Yeah. Sounds like some, some ironies too. And this, this Blanchard, from what I've, I read a little bit about her work and heard some of the conversations in regarding the uh, survey efforts for assets, asset-based community mm -hmm. development, is yeah. that right? Yeah. It's called Appreciative Community Building, or, and also, I mean, it's mentioned, it's called Asset-Based Development. And it sounds like H3 did that ostensibly, but from your experiences, it's... Well, they, like, they say they did that, but they don't say who they talked to, <laughs> and it was none of us, and it was no one that I have talked to. And I've talked to a lot of people in the last six months, okay. including like, you know, Carla Cooper, who's a faith leader in the area and also a professor at Doan. She's like well known in the community. It's the first time that the consultants were here in June. I actually sat, I met her because I sat with her, uh, next to her at a table uh, at the community meeting. And she mentioned how she got an invitation to a focus group the day before it was supposed to occur. And she's like a busy person who does a lot of stuff with her life, so of course she's not going to be able to go to the focus group the next day. So whoever set up the focus group didn't do a very good job reaching out to people with enough time for them to even like plan on going to the focus group. She did go to a focus group this last time, and she said her sense was that they were basically saying, congratulations you all, we're doing this plan, it's going to go great, thanks for your everything you've done here, like what do you think about these specific points? But that it was like a, you know, it was already over. So like for her experience to be that, for her to be a person who's been active in several communities, 
in Lincoln, um, neighborhoods in Lincoln, through universities, through chapel. It's just like, who did they talk to if they didn't talk to Carl Cooper, you know? Or like any number of people. Who did they talk to if they didn't talk to Pat Anderson? Who did they talk to if they didn't talk to all these other people who are like organizing these neighborhoods for like decades? Is my question. And they're not answering that question. Yeah, and when I talked to Angel Blanchard, she, she said that when they do this sort of canvassing, talking to people in the neighborhood, a point that she made, like one of the first points she made is that like, just simply, when she started doing that, oh yeah, we're gonna knock on people's doors, talk to them, ask them questions. People thought that was like crazy. They were like, you can't do that. Like, you just can't do that. So like even, that, and that's something that I've like bumped into when we, when we were initially sort of after this, first public meeting sort of despondently like how are we going to respond to this stuff we were like man we should just like knock on someone's door and talk to them about it but we were also like ah, I don't know if we can even do that like that's such a strange thing to do so it really is foreign like the whole the whole idea of even just talking to your neighbor about something important is and this goes back to like our, the larger culture and sort of the the wheels of propaganda and whatnot. Like, I think there's another big piece, which is like, we're not supposed to feel safe around each other. And it sucks. So that's sort of like the, the backdrop. And she's saying that like, even the whole idea of knocking on doors is like a radical idea in some people's minds. But then she says that like, when they're, when they're doing a project, for like a neighborhood sized project, they try and talk to have, try to have like, discrete conversations like 150 people and then those are available as part of the process and then those lead to all these other processes and Amanda actually knows more about the sort of like intricacies of how it works but I mean I can say pretty confidently that they haven't had discrete conversations with 150 people wherein those people are supposed to provide a vision for what they think should happen with the neighborhood like that just has not occurred I mean reason that hasn't occurred is because that method is like not privileged in any way. Like the opinions of the community are not privileged in their version of community engagement. What they're doing is coming up with options that a bunch of experts in specific fields that have to do with urban planning are laying out and then they're asking the community to pick from those options. Um, is that's what it seems like. I mean, because they have, they definitely haven't talked to 150 people, and they absolutely haven't said who they've talked to, and they absolutely haven't made available to the public the material uh, content of what was said when they were talking to people at focus groups.
like my joke has always been like i was on message boards and shit at age <laughs> like you know 13 yeah in the early 2000s like going off like arguing about like fucking lyrics on like, a basketball <laughs> sub forum or some shit and and then like in like 2007 or 2009 or i don't know exactly when it was but it's like suddenly the entire world became a giant mm. message board and then i was able to just like use these like skills that i had fucking <laughs> crafted to my advantage and it and it's and, and it, you know like that isn't always great but like you know like we're having this conversation you and i and i like enjoy this conversation i think it's pretty cool experience and like but we wouldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't for like oh yeah seventeen thousand. you know like you know not seven there's a lot of like uh platform mediation between you and mm-hmm. i that uh, that contributes to our ability to talk to one another and that's because like you know we've interacted on tumblr we've interacted on twitter i've listened to your podcast like on and on and on and on and i don't know like it's this it's this weird thing where like how how do you uh wield this kind of how do you use this like stuff like how do you use these tools effectively like what's your approach and and i feel like that's like a, a a question that's like missing from the conversation and like and then like that's the i mean i was kind of being glib when i kept saying it but like there's all these people like kind of wagging their finger being like didn't you learn about plagiarism in school <laughs> like and my point is just like didn't you learn about like being nice in school like <laughs> like are is that all we're using like this platform for is yeah. to like you Police. know like gotcha yeah. people for mm-hmm. being like plagiarists or are we using this to like be cool to each other and and it's this weird it's this weird thing because like you can benefit so much from having like a certain number of followers, a certain amount of attention. Like, you you know, like when I, when I, I did like a poetry tour once and I feel like a big reason I was able to like cold call so many people is because like I had a decently big Twitter following at the time and Mm -hmm. that was like meaningful to people or some shit. But like, and, and I got a lot of like positive experience out of that. But at the same time I was like, locked into twitter 24 hours a day like yeah feeling weird all the time and shit like that and and i don't know like that's like that's like the undergirding kind of thing of all of this that like i feel isn't that i i haven't even talked about that much is it's like this question of like how do we want to use these things to interact with people and, and like part of it might be like we don't have a ton of power like because i have said that like they juice this kind of like fuck you attitude like people are more likely to click on stuff that makes them feel bad than feel good or whatever but like nonetheless i do feel like it's within our capacity to like do cool shit with these like ways of like interacting with one another and like my point about o'toole like if if it had been like more like funny like if people had just like made like goofy memes about how she's a bozo like that would have been like an interesting moment in poetry to me but instead, it's about how she's like a fucking horrible person, and I'm glad her career is ruined. Yeah, which just sucks. doesn't really give anything to anyone, I don't think. I mean, arguably, there's some psychological reason why we hate click or whatever. But yeah, yeah. I think almost everyone who's involved in that behavior, myself included, is just like, oh yeah, I do that. I don't like it. I don't. I'd and, like to be doing less of it. Indeed. And yeah, I'd much rather be laughing. Yeah, and well, even with this like Lisa Lowe thing, which I feel strongly about. Yeah, I feel mixed about my own sort of digital interaction with it. Because, like, you know, like, I feel like I was making salient points and I wasn't being dishonest or fucked up exactly. But, like, 
do I really want to spend my day like critiquing the claims of a woman who feels shitty about how someone else used her poem? You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like, I feel like it wasn't the best thing I could have done. Like it wasn't Mm -hmm. the worst thing I could have done, but like, how, how do you figure that out? And that's been like something I've been thinking about, you know, in these kind of subsequent days since it's, since it's died down, because your point about how like nothing comes from it, it's kind of true. Like, you know, I, you know, I, I spent hours sort of riffing about this shit and like, you know, constructing these critiques and making these thoughts and doing all this shit. And, and, you know, like I'm talking to you about it. Like I've had conversations with people about it, but like, you know, Lisa Lowe is still like somewhat canceled in the way that Mm -hmm. she was like, and then like me and the people that I've interacted with, like all we are is like riled up about some like unfairness that we saw. And, and and yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know, like if that's good or bad or, or, and that's probably not useful. Like that kind of like binary framework isn't probably the best way of putting it. But like, cause my whole point with it is like, and, and I feel like it's easy to get kind of pulled away from like your essential feeling by like attacking or, mm-hmm. you know, like critiquing or whatever. Cause it's like very easy for me to be like, and this goes back to attention economy concept. Like it's very easy to me. Like if I call, like I, I, I called Cortese a liar in, in a handful of tweets, say. Like those tweets got more attention. You know what I mean? Like mm. me, you know, like deciding that she was being dishonest, which like, you know, I could, I don't think I was being unreasonable exactly, but it's still kind of unfair in a way. Like that gets more attention than like me doing a deep textual analysis of like these yeah. poems or something like that. And, and, and it kind of sucks because like you get, you get pulled away from like, like my whole point with it is just that like it's cool to take lines from other people and make poems out of them. Like I think that's awesome. And like that was the first thing I tweeted about Lisa mm-hmm. Lowe other than like it's fucked up what's happening to her. Like like and I could have just said that and been done with it. Yet I get kind of like sucked into it. Mm-hmm. And like it wasn't fun or enjoyable. There's other shit I would have rather been doing with my time. And, and and then like yeah i don't know like like it's almost like impossible to be a good actor in this kind of thing and then but then like that's that's the other thing is like lisa Lowe like is a good actor you know what i mean like all all she did was like say hey like here's the correspondence like this kind of sucks for me but i feel bad at the same time i'm done with this project And, and i was so like so impressed with that and uh and, you know, from the people that reached out to me, I, I, I knew that it was a challenging, like, thing for the people in her life to, like, fucking deal with. And it sucked. And I don't know. For such a, like, that that was, like, very inspiring to me that, that you could sort of just, like, use the platform to, like, put a truth out there and then just kind of, like, opt out from the weird discourse. Hmm. And that was cool. But, like, that's the big question that all this raises in my mind. is like, how do we use these fucking things yeah. in a way that's, like, cool, you know? And I, I still feel, like, very far from an answer to that. In some ways, a lot of what you're saying reminds me a lot of being on message boards, you know, when, when I was, like, 13 years old. A lot of times, you know, you, you go on there 
out of some desire to be social or something. And maybe mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have anything to say. So, you know, you just click into a topic that someone else has made. And then um, a lot of times you, you know, you post your response and realize like, oh, that person like said what they had for dinner. And then like I said what I had for dinner. That's not a conversation. It's just like <laughs> this sort of like um, weird desire to be social online, but not not really ha having the relationship like infrastructure to say anything interesting. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, yeah the, the kinds of responses in that thread that are going to themselves generate responses are, you know, probably more angry or negative or whatever. You know, it's, it's sort of a weird, a weird, um, I guess this still exists on something like Twitter, but a, a weird artifact of like message board eras was like posting in a thread and feeling like you had added something and then the conversation just like continues on and has nothing to do with your post. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's, that's a good, I had sort of forgotten about that feeling, but this whole like emotional like fucking terrain just like rose up within me thinking about that where you're just like you have this like thought that like really is important to you that you like put out there and then it just like no one quotes it no one responds. yeah yeah and you're just like ah oh, shit like i i'm the one that added to this but but i didn't like i like factually i did not yeah like what i did didn't matter to anyone and that's such a weird moment but yeah the mess message boards are like i feel like a rich kind of metaphor metaphorical ground to talk about these things and unfortunately like message board weirdos are a minority <laughs> of society but like the, the other thing i thought about when you're talking with that is like you know you get on the message board to talk about like whatever it is you know like like i i sign up for a basketball message board because i like wanted to post about nba or whatever and and but then, like, you know, six months later, I find myself, like, arguing about, like, you know, who's better, like, this band or that mm -hmm. band, and, like, calling someone a bozo for <laughs> liking another band or something. And it's, like, it's so divorced from why I started mm -hmm. doing it. Like, the impulse was, like, oh, I just want to, like, talk about basketball with people. But you're right that this sort of social – under underlying that is a, is a deeper social impulse that, like, cannot truly be satisfied – by the message board or or ra rarely is yeah. yeah 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 i mean there are there are meaningful exchanges and whatnot and you know i can think of a few you know moments where i was like oh this is really great but for the most part it is yeah rarity yeah um and i guess i don't know it's interesting this question that you have that we sort of jumped off from about you know how we can use these tools or platforms more intentionally maybe to have the sorts of conversations we want to have and, you know, even the conversation that happened about plagiarism, I think, is an interesting one. You know, here we are talking for an hour about it. Clearly, it, there's something about it that's interesting. But um, it seems in some ways like the platforms that we have are a good place to start a conversation, mm -hmm. but maybe not a good place to finish it. And I don't know. Mm. I don't know what to do with that information, but um, maybe that's the little fetus of a thought that can turn into something. Yeah, no, I like I like that thought. That's an that's a good thought. Yeah.
country, decided. Uh, the, the country which, which murdered and enslaved millions in Southeast Asia uh, as a result of the Vietnam War and we drew from, from the people who resisted. We were inspired because we feel that, that any society or any government or any system that is set up solely to profit a wealthy class uh, while the majority of the people toil and suffer and sell their labor power, uh, uh, so long as that system's only true uh, motive is, is profit interest and not the maintenance and, and uh, uh, embetterment of the population uh, to meeting human needs, then that society should not stand it should be challenged and questioned and overthrown. Yeah, is there is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Mm, uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe you could read a poem or something. That might be fun. Yeah, that's a good way to close it out. You want to read? You is there a poem you want to read? Um, do you have any ideas? Um, maybe the James. I feel like the James Gandolfini one was fun, or that one that was like an email. Sure. Yeah, uh, I'll do the James Gandolfini one. It's funny, because uh, it's, it's like two poems, but it's like, it's like a, I guess it's like a two-part serial poem or some shit, but uh, I love that poem, and I love James Gandolfini. I love James Gandolfini. He's one of my favorite artists. And I, I had this reading I did in Omaha once. I was like, I was going to read both of the poems called R.I.P. James Gandolfini. And I read the first one, and then the second one wasn't the next page in my stack of paper and then I like spent like three minutes like trying to find the poem and I couldn't find it and I felt like I had like spiritually wronged both the poem and James Gandolfini by failing to read both of them so this moment right now will be finally correcting that uh so yeah setting the record straight setting the record straight I'm reading both poems one poem but it's two poems R.I.P. James Gandolfini. I tweeted James Gandolfini was one of my favorite artists and nobody retweeted her fave. In an interview with Matthew Savoca, him and Brad Listy babble on about how much to edit. Savoca brings up Kerouac's first word, best word. Kerouac died of alcoholism at 47. James Gandolfini died at 51, but seemed older because he so adroitly portrayed human decay. I'm thinking about Pat Tillman's drunk brother telling the most powerful people in the world to fuck themselves. His brother didn't believe in God. Dead leaves rest under trees. Sometimes we put them in bags that look like pumpkins. And David chases not fade away. The protagonist goes to California to start his life. James Gandolfini spent a lot of time there because that's where the film industry is. The song Gloria by Van Morrison was in an episode of The Sopranos. The character Gloria is shown walking to Tony's boat. He gives her a gift, then there's a phone call. It's Tony's old girlfriend. And Gloria gets pissed and throws the gift into the ocean. Gandolfini is an Italian name. After Googling, I've determined the name doesn't mean anything. It may refer back to the town where somebody long ago was from, e.g. Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo from Vinci. His Broadway debut was the 1992 revival A Streetcar Named Desire. He rarely does interviews. 
there was a deeper meaning, one I desperately wanted to grasp. We are a family, and even in this day and age, that means something. Gandolfini also plays a mean trumpet. The naturally shy Gandolfini, September 18, 1961 through June 19, 2013. R.I.P. James Gandolfini. Is life meaningless? I think about us living an animal existence. But sometimes I think we can care about and love each other, even if proximity doesn't exist. There's a song I play while I ate mushrooms with moss. It's from The Sopranos, a scene where Carmela asks Tony for money, and it symbolizes her broken ethics. It goes, one often true love will just die and leave a grief to haunt the lonely nights and days. Today I tweeted, I'm so thankful for each golden hour of happiness that we shared together in the used-to-be. Hank Williams. Cheyenne retweeted, which I judgmentally questioned like an asshole, before remembering her mom is dead. But yeah, loves die, people die. Commentary tracks for The Sopranos are some of the best. There's a great one with Drea DeMatteo from the episode where her character, Boilers, gets murdered. Tracks is a word that can have lots of meanings. Like a track mark on your arm means heroin addict. Running on the track means youthful association with high school and before. I used to be believed that most people don't deserve to be literate. That was an argument against public education, and it wasn't unpopular. There are a lot of ways to look at history and gauge how fucked up someone is. Would they help a person in trouble in Nazi Germany? Would they own slaves? Would they not own slaves but not support the abolition of slavery? Would they favor public education? Track can also mean career track, how well you function in capitalist society. Every word has an infinity of meanings, just like us moving our bodies, every motion and infinity. And I think James Gandolfini tapped into that. In the self-help book I'm reading, one of the positive emotions is awe. I'm thinking of James Gandolfini and where the wild things are. This used to be all rock, and now it's sand. Then it's going to be dust. Then the whole island will be dust. And I don't know what comes after dust. Jim is what David Chase calls James Gandolfini in a commentary track. He talks about how difficult it was for Jim to strangle the actress who plays Gloria. In a statement, David Chase called him my brother, a dead man, a brother. And you will see him again when a loving God reunites us all with the loved ones who preceded us in death. The contrast to the memorial service should have been a warning shot to the military. You got people out there sort of speaking in these glittering generalities. Pat, your family doesn't have to worry anymore. You are home, you are safe, and you will not be forgotten. And then you've got a brother coming up there, somebody who's willing to speak. The brutality of that reality for them he was always given gifts. Thanks, Pat. Uh, I didn't write shit, because uh, I'm not a writer. And um, I just want to say it was, there's a lot of people here, thanks. 
Um, it was really amazing to be his uh, little baby brother. Uh, yeah, I'm not just gonna sit up here and break down on you, but uh, thank you for coming. Pat's a fucking champion, and uh, always will be. Uh, just make no mistake, he'd want me to say this. He's not with God, he's fucking dead. He's not religious, so thanks for your thoughts, but he's fucking dead. Um, I, I don't regret any of that. I, you know, as far as what I was thinking, I, I was just simply miserable. You know, I was, you know, I was, I was sad for my, my whole family. I was sad for my mom, my dad, Marie, Kevin. This isn't a production. It's my brother's service. I didn't plan on saying that. It just, uh, he's not what these people wished he was. One last time from Freddy's joint, we drove out to Lover's Point, shared our last kiss eye to eye. Spoke of tender times long past Said they weren't meant to last Too many different needs to satisfy She wants new shoulders to cry on New backseat to lie on And she always gets her way She wants to see other guys get lost in other eyes babies in the black books yes she's in the black books today I've yet to find a dreary bar where whispers don't drift from about her wild and wicked ways The hardest truths don't have a why Often true love will just die And leave a grief to haunt the lonely nights and days She wants new shoulders to cry on New backseat to lie she always gets her way She wants to hurt other guys Put tears in other eyes Babies in the black books Yes, she's in the black books today
Thank you. Yes, uh, before we leave today, I guess I'd like to ask Paul, since you're like an entourage expert, like what can you, what, these are both made by the same people pretty much, you know, it's, it's kind of a continuation right. of that same formula. The Where, how do you think Ballers compares to that original formula? You know, I find the characters on Ballers to be, at least from the just from watching this one episode, generally less compelling. The the, the sort of like the sort of archetype, the type, the stereotype, like the dumb stoner, the idiot older brother, the hot guy, and the businessman and the jerk off businessman. It, it was very just like clear, like this is who all these characters represent. All the dudes on this show are kind of like the same dude, and. Yeah. I don't know. It's just mm-hmm. that's the main degradation. I feel like otherwise the general plot mechanics are pretty like much on point. Like it's just like yeah, pointless conflicts that mean nothing. Sort of like spinning along until they find the next one, which you know is fine. <laughs> I think that's fine for Entourage. I feel like in bars, um, because it is like an iteration of that, and they you're right, they lose. Um, the strong characters that Entourage had, uh, so it does feel like it's even more uh, like, like I said, floating in the water. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's definitely worse actors. <laughs> definitely <laughs> worse actors. Also, like, credibly, you could believe that the people on Entourage were like idiots in Hollywood or whatever. Whereas yeah. a lot of these dudes on the show, I, I just found myself thinking, like, there's no way this dude is a professional athlete. Like, this just does oh. not make fucking <laughs> That's sense. That's Denzel Washington's son, the, <laughs> the Hall of Fame receiver. He, I was thinking about that this episode as well. Ricky does not look fit. Like, Ricky does no. not look like... Yeah, no, not at all. Which, weird. Which, which is weird because you. Ricky did get drafted by the Saints in real life. Um, really? Yes, John Wash John David Washington did get drafted by the Saints. I don't think he really played. And really? as we discussed in a previous what? episode, yeah, um <laughs> Vernon, Vernon plays for UCLA. Yeah. I don't believe Vernon played yeah, well. He went to, and yeah. Charles Charles definitely played nowhere. Um, but he was in the movie Eight Mile. <laughs>
from the 313. Put your motherfucking hands up and follow me. Everybody from the 313. Put your motherfucking hands up. Look, look. Now while he stands tough, notice that this man did not have his hands up. The three world's got you gassed up. Now who's afraid of the big bad boy? One, two, three, and to the four. One pop, two pop, three pop, four. Four pop, three pop, two pop, one. Your pop, he's pop, no pop, none. This guy ain't no motherfucking MC. I know everything he's got to say against me. I am white, I am a fucking bum. I do live in a trailer with my mom. My boy Future is an Uncle Tom. I do got a dumb friend named Cheddar Bob who suits himself in his leg with his own gun. I did get jumped by all six of you jumps. And we did fuck my girl. I'm still standing here screaming fuck the free world. You'll never try to judge me, dude. You don't know what the fuck I've been through. But I know something about you. You went to Cranbrook. That's a private school. What's the matter, dog? You in Paris? This guy's a gangster? His real name is Clarence. And Clarence gives a home with both parents. And Clarence's parents have a real good marriage. This guy don't want to battle. He's shook. Cause ain't no such things as that great crooks. He's scared to death. He's scared to look at his fucking yearbook. Fuck Cranbrook. Beat. I go a cappella. Fuck a papa doc. Fuck a clock. Fuck a trailer. Fuck everybody. Fuck y'all if you doubt me. I'm a piece of fucking white trash. I say it proudly. And fuck this battle. I don't want to win. I'm Audi. Here, tell these people something they don't know about me. specifically on um, the controversy between Claudia Cortesi and Lisa Lowe, because I think this was a lot less clear cut in terms of whether or not plagiarism had actually occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you know, certainly don't think that uh, this is plagiarism. Is that right? Yeah, I, I definitely uh, do not think, I mean, Lisa Lowe did not plagiarize. That is how <laughs> I feel. Um so I guess maybe then it's uh, 
is it appropriate to ask what constitutes plagiarism? Is it uh, more about syntax and structure, about specific words and language, or is it about um, the affect or the themes and meanings that this language has? Would you say that that's kind of a, the difference of opinion that you have between maybe some of the people who are adamant that this is plagiarism? Yeah, it's hard for me to sort of conceptualize the difference between what I think and what someone who thinks this is plagiarism thing, because like it is as though someone is telling me like the sky is green. Like this, uh, my relationship with poetry um, and my understanding of like how poetry works, which is it like is this sort of like ongoing discourse with itself where poets are expected to respond to other poets in all kinds of ways, including like um, using one another's lines, using one another's themes, using one another's ideas to, you know, enter into their own sort of poetic explorations. Uh, like that is what poetry is to me. So these kind of questions about syntax and stuff, like how much syntax borrowing is too much syntax borrowing it just doesn't feel like a like a relevant conversation. Like, like it feels like such a like if I you know if I were to rank the concerns of poetry like things that we ought to be concerned about as poets, like I would put you know is this like too much syntax similarity that question like one billionth on the list. <laughs> like so so I don't know. I mean like I don't want to come off like I'm completely without sympathy to uh, this perspective, because I, I do think that a big part of it is is this kind of alio tool, like background noise. Because basically like you have this instance of like someone writing lines that then kind of like cheaply, you know, paste in like, excuse me, that cheaply paste in like sort of synonyms or similar ideas or whatever and there's really no change um so, so then people are like pissed about that which you know i have weird feelings about being pissed about that but but at any rate like you have this sort of context where this thing happened and people felt very strongly about it then like a similar context emerges where um you can kind of look at it you can sort of scan it and think like oh these there's probably something here then the more I looked into it, the more it seemed to me that there wasn't something there, that it wasn't plagiarism. And I feel like there's this thing that was happening where people just kind of like uh, were reenacting this sort of same, uh, you know, s social dance that they were doing with Alio Tool. Where it's just like, oh, yeah, like I can sort of look at this poem and sort of like perceive it the same way I perceive this other situation and then just like act as I did previously because that was such a like there's this weird togetherness with this kind of thing too where people like come together uh you know like over like hating alio tool so like oh i'm gonna reenact that togetherness over this like new situation that like at first glance like seems like it could be somewhat similar yeah that's interesting i mean we talked earlier about how you know, in some ways, there might be two different ways to view this whole situation where one is um, I'm an individual poet and um, I'm going to do a certain amount of work and then hopefully be compensated for that in some way, whether that's monetary or in terms of appreciation or something like that. Um, and then there's another approach, which is I'm going I'm to be a poet as part of a poetry community and hopefully together we can achieve 
something. Um, and th this latter situation, you know, you're maybe less concerned with plagiarism because you understand yourselves to be working on a common project. Um, so in light of that, it's interesting how you're sort of characterizing the response to this alleged plagiarism as this way of people coming together, you know, mm -hmm. um, if we take seriously this sort of argument that we're outlining about there being tensions between the community and the individual within poetry and within any sort of artistic endeavor, it's sort of interesting, I guess, if you wanted to be cynical, you could say that, oh, these people are so deprived of community <laughs> in their art world that the only right. way that they can find it is by... Um, Coming together to sort of like shit on this person.
the reality of like art and being an artist is is it's like it's it's the li it's living the life of being creative and sharing that creativity with people you care about. Like that's that's where the real like magic and beauty and actual like growth as a person and all and all this shit like that's where that's where it all happens is in the social part of it. 